Who recognizes this man? Yeah, Kermit. Stop, Gerald. You had your second. Anyone? Does anyone recognize this gentleman? Jim Henson, right. Yeah, he's one of my creative heroes. Fun fact, my, son's, uh, my son Beck, his middle name is Henson after this fellow. Now, if I asked you to describe what it is that Jim Henson is known for, what would you say? The Muppets, right. Or maybe Sesame Street, and that'd be fair. He's easily most remembered for the lasting impact of those things, and they're wonderful. But my favorite Jim Henson work is easily a film called The Dark Crystal. Oh, wow. Okay, there's Dark Crystal fans, and there. Well, applause for The Dark Crystal. That's never happened. I've done this bit before. Uh, one time at my church at Van City, I put that image up there, and someone went, is that real? Um, well, you know, it is, it is. So The Dark Crystal was and still is the only live-action feature film ever created entirely with sophisticated uh, creature puppetry. And it's dark, it's scary, it's humorless, very strange. And Jim Henson wanted it to be even weirder. The first cuts of the movie featured almost all of the dialogue in an alien language designed by the filmmakers with no subtitles. (laughs) So when the, the Dark Crystal was finally released in 1982 with English at this point, audiences did not like it. It was poorly received, it was poorly reviewed, it was a commercial failure at the box office, and the negative feedback took mostly the same basic shape, which was, isn't this the Muppets guy? I thought it was supposed to be fun. I thought that this was going to be like a fun family fantasy movie. And where's Kermit? Where's Bert and Ernie? And where are the songs and the dancing and the lighthearted comical shenanigans? And Jim Henson was actually devastated. This had been his passion project, the work he was most proud of. It was a labor of love. He he'd hoped he would be recognized as an auteur and a creative pioneer in the field of p- filmmaking. Now, today, he is recognized as all those things. The Dark Crystal enjoys an enduring legacy. It's studied and screened in theaters and at events around the world. The puppet characters are displayed in museum exhibitions. I've seen them. There are novels and comic books and podcasts and board games. There's a prequel series coming to Netflix later this year. People, like me, name their kids Henson because of it. But not then. And so we say of Jim Henson things like, oh, he was unappreciated in his time. The people right there in that moment, the people experiencing an important breakthrough in art and film firsthand, they scorned it. They did not like it. They said, isn't this the Muppets guy? Give us a break. And artists are often frustrating that way. They shroud the importance of what they have to say in metaphor. They prefer the cryptic to the straightforward, the strange to the ordinary. They defy expectations. And, of course, it's not just artists. You could tell this story about any number of noteworthy figures. You know, Pablo Picasso died poor and unrecognized. The Catholic Church condemned Galileo for suggesting that the earth revolved around the sun and not the other way around. Even civil rights activists hated Martin Luther Luther King Jr.'s objection to the Vietnam War, the people in his inner circle. So familiarity with a person or with a way that things are done often solidifies our understanding of someone or something. And then our expectations freeze. And if that someone or that something deviates from our understanding and our expectations, we are not happy about it. And that tug of war between clarity and confusion, what we want and what we get, is a recurring motif in the story of Jesus. So with that, turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. If we haven't met yet, like Gerald said, my name is Josh. I was a pastor here at Bridgetown before I planted Van City Church in Portland. Um, or in Portland. 
I didn't plant it there. It's not here, by the way. No competition. It's in Vancouver before I planted in, Van- in Vancouver. That's why it's called Van City. Anyway, um, uh, funnily enough, I showed my son. I don't know. I think it was a coincidence, but my son saw a photo of me in this room teaching. And uh, he's like, oh, that's our old church. I was like, oh, that's right. I'm going there on Sunday. And he goes, does that make you nervous? That you have an audience? And I was like, where did you learn the word audience? But he was like, does that make you nervous to have an audience? And I was like, actually, no, I'm not nervous. And the reasons are twofold. One, you guys are always so kind and hospitable to me, so thank you. But two, the other reason is that Van City is a relatively small church. So on a given Sunday, if someone isn't particularly enthused with what I have to say, I will notice in the half-hour runtime of my teaching. I will see them. They will see me. It's horrible. (laughs) Not so here. The, the probabilities of success are exponentially higher based on sheer volume of attendance. So at Van City, like 10 inattentive people, that's like 10% of the room. That feels, that feels bad. Here, 10 inattentive people, that's like the line to the bathroom. I can deal with that. That's easy. This is a great day for me. Um, if you're new to Bridgetown, you have been working your way slowly but surely through a biography written in the first century documenting the life and the work and the teachings of history's most controversial figure, Jesus of Nazareth. We've been doing the same thing at Van City. Somehow along the way, we got ahead of you guys. Uh, A less mature pastor would infer with subtlety that this indicates some kind of superiority on our part. I won't do that. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Churches are not football teams. I don't know if you... No, but there's no competition. If they were, I'd know even less about churches. I know almost nothing about football teams or any teams, really. Um, but I do enjoy antagonizing my uh, sports fan friends, sports enthusiast friends, whatever they're called, by rooting vocally for the teams that they don't like. I have no idea what's going on, so I have to go out of my way to get this information and then give it back to them. So take, for example... Uh, your very own Alex Salzadel, who's a, who's a pastor here. He looks like a Ken doll. I'm sure you'd recognize. He was in that video that played him a second ago. Um, everyone laughed this morning, too. It's like a joke to his credit. It's like, ha, 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 he's so aesthetically pleasing. <laughs> don't, don't, don't laugh at him. Laugh at us, you know? Yeah. Justin Lucia, who's uh, your kid's pastor as well, I, I specifically target them together in a, in a text thread. Both of these gentlemen enjoy the basketball. I didn't know if you knew that about them. <laughs> Speci- specifically, the Blazers is a big thing to them a lot. They talk about it all the time. Now, I don't know anything about basketball personally, but what I do is if I hear a conversation going on around me about it, I'm like, oh, I should find out what's going on so I can text them to antagonize them. So I look up the scores and then wait till the Blazers lose and then text them to antagonize them. And I wanted to tell you guys this story. This is my warm-up, by the way. I wanted to tell... uh, So I texted them recently uh, after the Blazers had lost a game. I looked it up, texted Alex and Justin, and I said, more like rest in peace, city. Am I right? (laughs) Get it? Get it? (laughs) This is a cold and stoic face. He smiled once he saw me looking at him. This is Van City all over again. I shouldn't have made those jokes. Um... But then Alex Salzadel, he replied cordially. He would not be taken in. He, and he wrote, and I quote, ha, 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 three of them with spaces. So I pressed him. I was like, I'm not giving up. I wrote, let's, <laughs> this is what I said to him. Let's just end in prayer, okay? 
Lord, let tonight's embarrassment be a sign of further ruin to overtake and humble the Blazers as they continue to experience defeat at the hands of their enemies. Amen. And <laughs> this time, he answered, ha, 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 again, but then added, you suck. <laughs> all, all that to say, no sports rivalries between churches. We're friends, so it's, it's nice to be here. On a serious note, actually, because of my profound love for Bridgetown Sincerely and the people in this community, uh, I'm really grateful to be here. Thanks for having me, by the way. If you're one of the people who rather dislikes my being here, I know you exist. Uh, John Mark invited me, and he would welcome your angry emails. So <laughs> let's get uh, to it. You guys ready to do some work? You all right? Great. Thank you. So you last left off with Jesus in a long stretch of parables, one of his preferred vehicles for teaching. One scholar describes the concept of a parable this way. It's a metaphor or simile drawn from nature or common life, arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness, and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt of its precise application to tease it into active thought. These are strange, often ambiguous stories, not intended for clear or direct communication, but for something more than that. So let's read two more parables, and then we'll finish chapter 13. Look down at Matthew chapter 13, beginning with verse 44. Jesus says this, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then, in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Now, this is called three studies for figures at the base of a crucifixion. It's a trio of paintings by Francis Bacon, one of at least 22 such trios that he called triptychs, which would be displayed as a singular collection like so. It's one of the world's more known and noteworthy paintings. Francis Bacon intended these paintings to be imbued with communicative purpose, meaning they say something. Now, here's the thing. We don't know what exactly. There are theories, of course, and there's interpretations. There's an insight or two from the artist himself. But it's not like there's a commentary printed beneath it. So here's exactly what I was getting at with these things. And to many artists and art lovers around the world for decades, this and other works by Bacon have been a source of inspiration and emotional resonance. To others, it's offensive or it's grotesque or even worse, it's just meaningless. It's weird shapes and who cares? And if Francis Bacon had something to say with this... Why not say it some other way, less confusing, less ambiguous, less grotesque? Because, I would argue, that would stifle the message rather than amplify it. And here's the thing. I think that Jesus might agree with this. Jesus, like God himself, is an artist. He's creative. Thus, he exploits a well-known paradox in artistic expression, and it's this. You can water down the creativity of an artistic message to the degree that it becomes comprehensible for a wider audience. The more watered down, the more comprehensible, the wider the audience. And so that's how you get like the corporate drivel of the world, the Taylor Swifts of the world. Uh, Yeah, I know. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. Someone was like, take that out. And I was like, no, I'm going to do it again. (laughs) The Folgers coffee of the music industry, if you will, enjoyed by millions. But there's a catch. We're still going. You'll be all right. (laughs) 
the, there's a catch. The more watered down, the weaker the message for those who actually have ears to hear, so to speak. So the more creatively uninhibited the message, the more communicative power it holds for an audience prepared to receive it. The more watered down, the less power. And so in art, one of the chief ends of the artist is creative freedom. And one of the great struggles of art and commerce is the intervention of those who would water it down, movie studios and censors and record labels, managers, publishers, whatever it might be. Because when money is involved, the wider the audience, the better. But a credible artist is more often most concerned with the uncompromised realization of their vision, whether it communicates to anyone or not. And Jesus' message is already wildly divisive, And even more controversial at this point in the story. So like any great artist, he makes things even more complicated. Harawas puts it like this. Jesus uses some of the parables to instruct the crowd, the wide audience. And he uses all the parables to instruct the disciples, those on the inside. So the people who already have the message, who are already accepting it, they'll get even more out of these stories. Those who won't have it or who are on the margins, who are stepping back, who are getting more and more alienated... They, the parables will only further confound them and become more and more confusing, more and more of a stumbling block. And again, like an artist, Jesus is gearing up for more and more rejection. And it's easy to see why. Look at these parables. Two of them are about giving up everything for one precious thing. And the next parable that we're about to read is about judgment. So in the first parables, there's a buried treasure. It's a sweet-sounding little story about the immeasurable value of the kingdom. And it's easy to miss that. In order to get it, You have to get rid of everything else. Jesus is saying, yes, it is wonderful, it is worth it, but it will cost you everything. And then it gets more intense. Look down at verse 47. Once again, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then he leans into his close friends, we think, and says, Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. He said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. So to inherit the kingdom costs everything, but rejecting the kingdom costs even more. If you remember last week, you talked about the parable of the weeds, where Jesus plants seeds, but the devil screws everything up by infesting the harvest with weeds. And that parable was about having the patience to trust in God's justice and timing. This parable is about what happens after that. And it serves as a warning for those who actually follow Jesus. In fact, in verse 49, it mentions angels separating the wicked from the righteous. But in Greek, it's more literally, more literally they will separate the wicked from the middle of the righteous. In other words, traveling in the right crowds does not make you a disciple of Jesus. He will reach down into the middle of people who claim to follow him and draw out the wicked from the righteous. And when Jesus tells his disciples this stark, like, kind of scary story, his close friends, he leans in and asks them, do you understand this? And they say, yeah, I think, I think we get it. So let's keep going. Verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. This, this is a transition in Matthew's uh, biography. This means we're moving on from a very long, detailed sequence of narratives that preceded this one. Jesus was arguing with the religious leaders. 
stirred up all kinds of trouble. He called them a bunch of snakes. It was a really cool story. <laughs> he offended his family members. Then he taught some big crowds using only riddle-like teachings called parables. Then, Matthew writes, we transition into a new scene. Verse 54, coming to his hometown, Jesus began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Now, previously, Matthew, the author of this biography, has been telling some incredible and really inspiring story. The first two acts are really exciting. Jesus is reaching those on the margins of society. He's valuing the overlooked and oppressed. There's been miraculous healings and casting out demons and even resuscitating dead people, forgiving sins. But then controversy starts to set in, and Jesus stirs up trouble, a lot of it on purpose, deliberately. Accusations are lobbied at Jesus. And now Matthew has begun to balance all that inspiring beauty with a painful truth. We've seen what Jesus says and what Jesus does, so let's see how the people respond. And the answer is, genuine faith is rare and complicated. So take this story, for example, rejection in Nazareth. Jesus shows up. He teaches at the synagogue as per his typical teaching approach. And at first, people are excited. They were amazed, the text says. And that word amazed is expleso in Greek. It infers not just excitement, but admiration. And then Matthew presents this jarring twist. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? The people of Nazareth are asking themselves, isn't this the carpenter's son? So this is a twofold discrediting of the sudden but fleeting surge of admiration for Jesus' presence in the synagogue. How did he learn to teach like this? And where did he get his power? So ancient Israel had its own educational system. And these people would have spent three decades with Jesus at this point. They knew well enough that he had not received a higher education. He worked with his dad, Joseph. They know that. They were there. When the heck did he sneak off to school? They're asking each other. We know exactly what he was doing. He was here working with his dad. This dude was just living next door to me. He's not of noble birth. He doesn't have an advanced education. And Matthew records it as this near instantaneous transition. Jesus' wisdom and power are on full display. And notice, knowing no one is denying either thing. In fact, they openly admit that he has both things, but they refuse to take him seriously. In fact, that line, they took offense, literally means they refused to believe in him. And what's funny about all this is that the doubts of the crowd are all more or less true in the technical sense. We know that Jesus is not Joseph's biological son, but he was his son in the practical sense. His mom is Mary. They're right about that. He does have brothers and sisters. So Matthew's highlighting again and again that Jesus is the king, but not the type of king that anyone was expecting. One scholar said it like this, Jesus seems at first to be special, perhaps even messianic, the Messiah, But people with fathers like the carpenter and mothers like Mary and brothers and sisters like the people they know cannot be messiahs. He is too much like them to be the transcendent one. One of the core aspects of Jesus' identity, something so beautiful, so incredible, is here to Jesus' discredit, and that's that he's too human. 
And this kind of thing still happens all the time. Think about what happens when one argues for a nuanced, thoughtful approach to studying the Bible, one that takes into account the human elements of its authorship. This frustrates those in want of biblical literalism or a surface reading plain and simple. They throw up their frustrated hands. If it's not all black and white, then we can't believe any of it. That God, as he in his divinity would breathe out the scriptures and allow his human authors their own personalities and biases and agendas, it's too much for some to consider. Too human, below God. The scholar I just read goes on to say this. This story teaches us to weigh realities. It teaches that Jesus is not less messianic for being human, nor is he less divine for coming from ordinary stock. It is the glory of God to stoop. This story teaches us to hold Jesus' deity in his humanity. Now, of course, Nazareth at the time couldn't see this, nor could Jesus' own family. Look at the way the text says uh, that Jesus says, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. Some of your translations say household or even among his own family members. And they were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Then Jesus told them a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his own family. Now, a few stories back, Matthew's already inferred that Jesus' family is on the fence when Jesus is inside and he's teaching his students and they're eagerly listening to him at his feet and his family's on the outside being like, someone get that guy out here. Uh, Another biography of Jesus actually spells it out really plainly when they write this. Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. This is important for our story tonight. Remember that for later. The story ends with this haunting admission. He did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Which makes you, the reader, go, wait, so... Faith is a prerequisite for miracles? And the answer is, well, yes and no. The New Testament makes a very clear ongoing connection with true faith and the power with which the Holy Spirit is free to move and to work and to heal and to speak. But, and please hear me on this, the Bible does not paint a portrait of God as standing by, ready to do miracles, but, oh, you couldn't quite muster your faith up to level 10. Close, level 9, but no miracles for you today. I'm sorry. It's not like the, you know, the Polar Express where you're just trying to buckle down. I believe, I believe, and, and convince you guys haven't seen the Polar Express. Check it out this Christmas season with your families. <laughs> There's this strange understanding that's, uh, of how the Spirit works. It's depressingly pervasive amongst disciples of Jesus who would sincerely like to see the Spirit move. And they sigh before an unanswered prayer thinking, I guess we just didn't believe hard enough. We didn't have enough faith. And maybe they don't think that consciously, but somewhere deep down that's what they believe. And I sympathize. I really do. For one reason or another, it's easy to slip into that assumption. The problem is that throughout the Bible, God does all kinds of miraculous things without requiring faith or in some cases without requiring basic belief. In my own life, I've seen the Spirit move in power when I have been almost entirely faithless myself or the person for whom I was praying had no faith whatsoever. The problem with the whole like faith requirement approach to prayer is that it's a contractual understanding of how God works rather than a relational understanding of how God works. As if God always and only operates with a you keep your side of the deal, I'll keep my side of the deal approach to prayer and miracles. Is that how God works? 
No, absolutely not. God is overwhelmingly and overtly depicted throughout the entire Bible as the only one willing to lovingly keep covenant regardless of how often or how severely his covenant partners break covenant. God is not contractual. He's relational. And in a dynamic relationship, faith and belief absolutely factor in the way that we pray and what happens as a result. But they are not black and white scales that quantifiably measure out the possibility of miracles. So there are times when we're hopeless and faithless and God shows up and moves in power. And there are times when we are upright and excited, but we falter in faith and we quench the Spirit of God. As always, relationships are complicated. So in tonight's story, I think this has more to do with Jesus' idea of what is quite frankly, worth the effort, so to speak. In his commentary on Matthew, R.T. France writes this, The problem is not so much doubt over Jesus' ability to carry out any specific healing as skepticism as to his whole image as a miracle-working man of God. It's not just doubt. These people don't even believe Jesus is someone worth listening to, and so they refuse to believe in him. So honestly, how much work do you put into a group like that? Remember in Matthew 10, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home and town, or town and shake the dust off your feet. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Meaning, Jesus is preparing his disciples for rejection, the inevitability of rejection. And he places himself in a long tradition of Israel's prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, who each brought urgent messages from God himself only to be rejected by those intended to receive it. And this has been happening throughout the entire story of the Bible. Now it's happening to Jesus. Stanley Hauerwas writes this, He performs only a few deeds of power in his hometown because any deeds of power would only lead to further misunderstanding and rejection. Matthew makes it clear that it is Jesus' fate to be misunderstood and rejected. As apprentices of Jesus, the same is true of you and me. In fact, Jesus has already said in no uncertain terms, in this world you will have trouble. In John 15, he said, If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. And if the whole if thing isn't enough to bother you, like, oh, man, it sounds like there's good chances there. Jesus is elsewhere a tad more direct. You will be hated by everyone because of me, which is great news. Let's pray. I'm just kidding. That's not the end. You get the joke. It was the end. Before we end... I want us to wrestle with two ideas from tonight's text. One's on the surface, one's a a ways beneath it. The first is rejection, and the other idea is hope. So again and again, Matthew highlights both the power of Jesus' message and the inevitability that it will be met with rejection, at least in some sense. And it's not just Jesus' teaching. It's his personhood. It's his way of life, even the nature of his humanity itself. People will not have it. A while back, a friend of mine was telling me about the way someone close to him in his immediate family, actually, had declared the topic of Jesus, the Bible, all that as officially off limits. Don't bring it up. Don't discuss it with me. 
That's it. I'm not going to talk about it with you anymore. So what's he supposed to do at this point? No, the gospel will be heard and chase this person around shouting passages from the Bible at them. It doesn't usually work. I don't know. Try it. Don't try it. That kind of rejection, especially when it's someone in your own family, can be a devastating thing or can be painful or confusing. But really, it it shouldn't come as any surprise before American evangelicalism toppled under the weight of its own hypocrisy, it ran a long and aggressive campaign to, if you remember the language, take America back for God. So where there were these things called the culture wars and hostile battles against anything and everything in culture that offended the evangelical sensibility, everything from like holiday well-wishing to Starbucks cups to whether or not people prayed before sporting events. People were not like shopping at certain places if they said happy holidays or they were getting up in arms about what the heck, you know, a corporate coffee chain puts on a paper cup for some reason. And it, it felt also ridiculous. It's easy to kind of punch holes in any given part of it now. You, the easiest ones being like you can't coerce Christian behaviors. You can't legislate the kingdom of God. What the state or the host culture does can't shape the church and on down the list. But the bigger, more fundamental argument was always... Disciples of Jesus should expect rejection, at least to some degree, not fight for dominance. Compelled by political fervor, fervor, not discipleship, some stand and say, hey, we're being persecuted. Our values are under attack. But they're not, not really. Even if they were, there's no actual threat because no one can force a disciple of Jesus to abandon their rabbi. They've tried. And in all manner of ways, for hundreds of years throughout church history, and disciples of Jesus simply say, no, we will die first. And they do to this very day. So holiday greetings or trick-or-treating or prayer removed from public schools are not rejections of the gospel in the formal sense. The more you read the gospels, the more you see this painful juxtaposition of the gospel's urgency and its divisiveness, meaning the gospel must be shared The story of God's plan to rescue a broken world in and through Jesus of Nazareth is hope. It's good news. It is a new reality breaking into the old one. It changes life in the here and now, every aspect of life in the here and now. It's a new way to be a human being, a new kind of humanity, a new family, a new community. It's also hope for the future. For the age to come, the renewal of all things, the resurrection, the eradication of evil and injustice, the undoing of sin and suffering and death forever. That is very good news. But it comes at a cost. The complete inversion of one's value system, the redirection of one's entire life, the rethinking and rearranging of what is true and what is false in light of Jesus and only Jesus. And that might be a new understanding of money or comfort or security or love or sexuality or peace or justice or simply what it means to be a human being in the world. It might mean that you leave behind your love of aspiration and career and money and possessions. It might be uh, uh, leaving behind your clinging to your own image and reputation or maybe a new career path or a relationship that has to go or several of those things. All of those things. Yes, it's very good news but it is costly good news. And because of that, it is divisive. So to end tonight, there's two things I want you to consider as you grapple with the inevitability of rejection for the sake of Jesus. The first 
is that not all rejection is for the sake of Jesus, even if it seems spiritual. It could be because you're wrong. Uh, <laughs> of course, you know of all kinds of heinous things for which alleged Christians often chalk up to rejection. Last year, uh, a Michigan couple was charged with felony murder and first-degree child abuse when their newborn died of malnutrition, and the father claimed it was, he was being persecuted because of his faith, and he told a reporter from prison, you will answer to God for everything that you say against me. That's not persecution. That's a murder charge. And, of course, that's an over-the-top example. Most of us are more familiar with something less extreme. Um, there are some people in my extended family back in Georgia with a history of alienating everyone within the Porter family tree because no one is Christian enough for them. Um, with, so they have no relational equity whatsoever. They drop in every year or so. They do some moral recon. And then they sit at someone down because they are, quote, deeply concerned with the sin in their life. And needless to say, they earned a pretty lousy reputation pretty quickly. No one wants to hear from them. And what's interesting is that every time someone calls me and tells me about a new incident with these yahoos, most of the time, they're technically right. You know, that I'm like, yeah, well, I mean, so-and-so does drink too much, or so-and-so's family is messed up. So-and-so does need to go to church, frankly. But they aren't being rejected for being right. They're being rejected because they're jerks. <laughs> and don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that no disciple of Jesus ever, under any circumstances, holds another disciple of Jesus accountable for their actions. They can, and they should within the loving safety of community. So contrary to the popular opinion, you know, just, be, just love people and be Jesus to them, and they'll come to their own awareness of, you know, the, the person of Jesus and whatever. When I hear that, I think, okay, well, be Jesus to them. Jesus in what scenario? When he's gentle and subtle or when he calls people out in front of crowds and calls them snakes and calls his own friend Satan. <laughs> Time and a place, I guess. Is Jesus' approach to destructive evil simply sitting back and saying nothing? No. But, and please listen, there's a time and a place to go to someone in loving, Holy Spirit-led concern with humility, having wrestled with your own garbage, and to voice that concern in loving kindness. And even then, you may face rejection. You may face rejection for embodying the teachings and lifestyle of Jesus without saying much of anything outwardly at all. This is, to my estimation, as true as it's ever been. The corporate groupthink herd mentality in an outrage culture, especially one like Portland and the Portland metro area, uh, does not like the teachings of Jesus. They don't like Jesus' claims to be the only truth. They don't like how he goes on about judgment all the time about darkness and light, sheep and goats, this parable that he said tonight about separating the good fish from the bad fish and the whole weeping and gnashing of teeth thing, not a popular teaching from Jesus. And so there's this great collective effort to soften or rearrange the controversial teachings of Jesus until you're left with either a deluded Jesus of your own design or a kind of like hazy, liturgist, psychobabble Jesus or no Jesus at all. And believe me, I am from the racist, fundamentalist, pseudo-Christian deep south. So I spent 28 years of my life. I know that there is a time and a place to acknowledge and even apologize for rampant misrepresentation of Jesus. But at a time like this and in a place like this, 
what I'm seeing more often than not is not grappling with misrepresentation and more so a desperate scramble to somehow tweak the record of what Jesus actually said and did. So I think I surprise people sometimes. I've had people say to me, man, I want to follow Jesus, but only if you take out like the whole sin concept and I don't like the whole he's the only way to God stuff. And if I mix in a little bit of Buddhism, a little bit of, you know, New Age Eastern philosophy and a little bit of this book and this podcast. And I've actually told people, look, sounds like you don't want to follow Jesus. Don't follow him. Lots of people don't. It's not for everyone. (laughs) Because what you're proposing is not actually discipleship to Jesus. If you want to do that, do that. That's not following Jesus. And we should sympathize because Jesus is divisive. When accurately depicted, Jesus is an affront to the right, to the left. Both sides will reject him. But when you make it your business to, in the language of the scriptures, lead a quiet life, to love and care for the people in your life and your community with self-sacrificial love and humility and graciousness for the people around you, understanding for the brokenness of the world, sympathy, compassion— you will typically reduce the odds of hostile rejection at least a little bit, in my experience. So that's the first idea, that not every kind of rejection is actually for the sake of the gospel. And secondly, to end, the answer to rejection, to all rejection, is not hostility to fight back and get all mad. And it's not fatalism. Oh, what can we do? It's all over with. So don't get angry. Don't give up. The answer to rejection is resilient hope. Look at tonight's story, for example. We now have two examples in Matthew's biography of Jesus of his own family rejecting him, his own brothers, and in this story, his own mother. But then something changes. Today, there's obviously a spectrum of belief when it comes to a theology of Mary, the mother of Jesus, but all disciples of Jesus agree that she is among the most noteworthy heroes of the biblical story. She was a poor peasant, teenage nobody, a woman in a time where women were even more devalued than they are today. And she was chosen by God with the honor of knowing Jesus in a way no one else ever could, to be his mother, to carry him in her womb, to sit at his feet when he died, and to see with her own eyes him raised from the dead. She was, from what we know, a strong and courageous woman who continued to play a role in leading the growth of the church as the story went on. Of course, you can't see any of that in tonight's story, just that he was not welcome amongst his own family. But now that we know what happens after this story, the entire passage is pregnant with hope. And Jesus' siblings, remember that line from John's gospel, it said, even his own brothers did not believe in him. Tonight's story even mentions James and Judas, also called Jude by name. They did not believe in him at this point, but then something changes. James and Jude went on to co-author the New Testament, honored by having their books bear their names forever. So rejection is inevitable, but rejection isn't always the end of the story. When we confront it, and we will, we don't shout or bow up in proud self-defense, but we also don't concede or forfeit or abandon the gospel. Instead, I would argue we grieve, we mourn, and we fan the resilient little flame of hope. Maybe that person in your life or in your family will be like Mary, will be like James or Jude. As for you, the ending is written. This season of rejection ends on a coming day in total victory. 
not for the sake of personal pride or personal vindication, but for the sake of Jesus' kingship, once scorned, moving out across every square inch of the universe forever. So wherever you find yourself tonight confronting rejection or anticipating rejection, grieving it, or celebrating a hope that gave way to victory, the prayer is the same, that we would follow Rabbi Jesus well, that we would allow him to teach us to lay down pride just as we lay down defeat. Earlier I read from John 16, in this world you will have trouble. Of course, the entire verse, many of you already know, goes on. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. It's true that if you actually embody the teachings and lifestyle of Jesus, even with humility, even with thoughtful nuance and loving sensitivity, much of the world will not like it. Why? Because the way of Jesus is a line in the sand that says, this is the truth and everything that is not the truth is a lie. If something is so true and so precious that when you find it, when you really find it, you would give up everything to keep it, that decision will be divisive. That kind of wild abandon will alienate you, invite close friends and family to question your sanity, frankly. And Jesus, of course, claims blatantly and repeatedly to be the only truth. And that's good news, not bad news, because yes, we believe Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, the only way to God the Father. And thus, Jesus is the only one who can overcome the world. Why would we ever assume such an incredible declaration would be anything other than costly? How would such a staggering, divisive claim not offend and confound the many while wooing the few? And so Jesus taught plainly, wide is the gate, broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. The road of discipleship is narrow, sometimes arduous and daunting, but it's the only road that leads to life. And on that road, rejection is inevitable, but rejection isn't always the end of the story. So we don't concede or forfeit or abandon the gospel. We grieve, we mourn, and we fan the resilient little flame of hope and carry on down the narrow road. Let's pray together and invite God's Spirit to encourage us. Thank you for listening to the Bridgetown Church Podcast. We are in the middle of a year-long capital campaign to raise money to buy a building on the inner core, an old, beautiful, historic church building about a mile from where we meet right now. If you have been blessed at all by this podcast and would like to give to that over and above your regular giving to your church, wherever you call home, we would love to have you participate in that. Feel free to visit Bridgetown dot church slash give for more information. Thanks for listening.